This morning, we're um, um, continuing on our topic of the Great Commission and with the, that emphasis on going and how do we go. Um, and, and today, what I want to focus in on is specifically what do we say when we go um, when it comes to explaining the good news concerning Christ. So this week, we are um, coming to, uh, again, what is the gospel? And this dovetails with one of ECC's core values, which is reaching the world with the good news of Jesus Christ. We are called not only to focus on our personal discipleship, our our personal growth in the Lord, and nor are we only to focus in on our family's growth or our children's growth in the Lord. These, These are greatly important, of course. But as disciples, as followers of Jesus, we are also called to show um, uh, great concern uh, for the spiritual condition of the lost, of people who are unchurched, who may never have actually heard uh, the gospel, the good news concerning um, Jesus Christ. We are commanded to be a part of the mission which began with Jesus, and, and he describes his own mission as he came to seek and to save the lost. And in Romans 1.16, the Apostle Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of, to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So what we're focusing in on today is what, what is the nature of that gospel <laughs> that is the power of God for salvation? And so... Um, it's actually not an easy question. It's not an, it's, there's not a simple answer to this question of what is the gospel, and it's created some confusion. So I, I hope to um, try to help you navigate a little bit through how the New Testament answers this question, as well as to give you some just practical, you know, one practical how-to. How, how do you take or guide someone through a basic um, gospel conversation? So that's where we're going this morning. Would you stand? Um, My first reading is going to be from Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 17, and then skipping to verse 23. This is Matthew 4, 12. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he, that's Jesus, withdrew into Galilee And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then verse 23. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Would you pray with me? Lord, we fall down before your holy majesty, and before your goodness that's made manifest to us each day. And it is according to your goodness that you've provided us with a sure and certain word that we might have a light to our path and a lamp unto our feet 
For otherwise, we'd be walking in spiritual darkness. So Lord, by your spirit, use your word to further transform us more and more into the image of Jesus, for whose sake we ask it. Amen. You may be seated. So this morning, we're taking a little time to to do just a very brief survey of what the New Testament says about the gospel. And what I want you to see um, is that I think part of the confusion and how we answer this term is is a confusion that arises from the New Testament and how the New Testament uses this terminology. Um, in Greek, it's, it's uh, euangelion, okay? Euangelion, that gets translated as gospel, or it could be translated as good news or glad tidings, something like that. Now, when the, usually when the New Testament uses this term, euangelion, it is referring to a specific message. It's a message that concerns Jesus. But what I want you to see is that sometimes the New Testament uses, like, uh, has a broad definition of what the good news is. There's a, kind of a, you know, from a, a 30,000 big picture view of, of what this gospel is. And then in other occasions, it takes a more narrow view um, in terms of uh, this kind of brief um, uh, synopsis of, of some critical um, uh, truths connected to the death and resurrection of Jesus and what the necessary response is to that. So, so part of the confusion that I, that I want you to see is, is that the New Testament uses this terminology differently. And so it's up to us to, to, as we're reading through the New Testament, to kind of get a sense based on the context, is the author using this terminology of the good news with a wide-angle lens? It's a, the, the big picture, a broad understanding. And in that broad understanding, we're looking at kind of in general the blessings that are associated with the coming of Christ and the kingdom of God. And this is a wide angle when we're talking about these blessings because it begins with the coming of Christ, with his life and ministry, but culminates in a world that is remade, that is renewed, the new heavens and the earth. So it has this kind of cosmic um, impact, okay? That's the, the broad lens. And then we're going to come to the narrow lens, which is a lens which uh, is often um, the, the message that we are going to speak to someone when we have this opportunity to talk about spiritual things, you know, often maybe for the first time or, or after developing a relationship. It's a, a, the message that we want to give. Usually it's a brief. It's, it's not long. And, and it's this narrow message that the New Testament also is happy to refer to as the euangelion, as the gospel, as the good news. Before we get to this narrow version, I, I do want to show you at least one of the places where the New Testament uses um, the gospel to communicate a broad picture of the blessings God has for his people. And again, these blessings go beyond just forgiveness of sins. It goes beyond um, peace and reconciliation with God and, and this gift of eternal life. In Matthew 4, we have our very first use of the term gospel, okay? Uh, this, in Greek, again, it's, it's euangelion. It gives us an example of looking at the good news through a wide lens, okay? So looking at the meaning of gospel with this wide-angle lens, in some ways, is answering a, a, um, a specific question. And the question is, what is the whole good news concerning the coming of Christ, 
Okay, so very often when we're looking at this, this wide-angle lens, this broad um, uh, answer to the question, what is the good news? It's an answer to the question, what is the whole good news of the coming of Christ? That's a different question that, than is asked when we look at the narrow you know, focus of the gospel through a narrow lens. And so we see Jesus use this terminology, or it's used of Jesus in his preaching, um, and, and it's at that, that last verse, verse 23 in Matthew chapter 4, where it describes Jesus, uh, how he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and here it is, proclaiming the gospel, the good news, the glad tidings of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. This gospel of the kingdom. Now, you would expect, given that this is the first time that our author, Matthew, uses this particular term, that he would give us some reference as to what he means, okay, in terms of the, the context of what has come before or after. In this case, if we go back earlier in the passage that I read, we see just this little summary statement that gives us a little more information about what this gospel of the kingdom is. Verse 17, there we read that from that time, following uh, you know, this initiation into ministry, Jesus began to preach saying, repent. Well, that's new. This is our response um, within the gospel. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So without telling us what this kingdom is, we're told that it is at hand. And in the, 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 the context of chapter 4, and, and we're going to go back and see how Matthew begins to unpack this with an allusion to um, uh, the, uh, the prophecy of Isaiah, specifically to Isaiah chapter 9, uh, verse 1. Matthew sees um, Jesus is relocating. He's, he's kind of making his headquarters now uh, in this little town of Capernaum, which is on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. Now, this town, Capernaum, is what was formerly part of the region, apparently, where the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali were located. And this triggers within the mind of Matthew the fulfillment of a specific prophecy that is first uttered through Isaiah. Okay? And he, um, he refers back to this prophecy in verse 15, where he says, um, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. Now, that great light is a reference to the coming of the messianic king, which Matthew is, has already shown us that Jesus fits at least um, through the genealogy that he is clearly a physical descendant of King David. And so what Matthew is showing here, he's already shown that he's, he, he has the... the uh, the lineage qualifications to fulfill this prophecy, and now he's assuming it to be the case, that this move to the northern sea uh, or to the, the, the region of Galilee is, again, a fulfillment of Isaiah. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region in the shadow of death on them, Matthew says, the light has dawned. A light has dawned. It is, so when Jesus says the kingdom is at hand, he, says, he means something a little different than when John the Baptist preached this. John was preparing the way for the coming Messiah. Um, and John has a similar message, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. For John the Baptist, it means it's coming, it's soon, it's imminent, it's near. But now Matthew's saying it's here. 
This light has dawned. It has dawned. It is made present in the, in the person of Jesus. And this all begins to unfold, unpack, and it gives you this kind of broad picture of now what Matthew is thinking about in terms of the meaning of this gospel of the kingdom. Matthew sees the gospel of the kingdom as a fulfillment of these promises um, that, that he alludes to back in Isaiah. Now, if you go back and read chapter 9 and then chapter 11 of Isaiah, and if you continue through Isaiah, what Isaiah begins to unfold in his, his time are all of these promises about how God would one day restore Israel. The promises of Isaiah were brought great hope to the people, and the people reading, you know, Matthew, the Jewish people reading this, would begin to connect with all of these prophecies and promises of Isaiah, promises of the restoration of the people. And this restoration um, will at some point coincide then with the coming of this mysterious descendant of David. You know, the, the, the dynasty of David is like a stump in, in Isaiah's uh, mind, but from this stump will come a root, it'll come a shoot that will become a branch and, and will be the messianic descendant of David who will ascend God's royal throne. And this Messiah will bring vindication to his people. The Messiah will ultimately reign over throughout the entire earth. The Messiah will bring deliverance to the people from their enemies. And if you read Isaiah, ultimately the blessings are cosmic in scope. Blessings like the lion will lie down with the lamb. A child will, you know, be on top of a cobra's nest, but not be with, with no fear, you know, of being struck and, and dying. Um, what we see in Isaiah are these pictures of a world that is being remade, ultimately where it's being reset to its original um, uh, operating procedure, which was Eden. And so Isaiah has all of these prophecies and promises that, that ultimately are fulfilled in the world being remade, renewed, and reset to its Eden-like paradise status. Okay. So when, when Matthew describes Jesus, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand, he's saying the beginning, the fulfillment of all of these promises are now being triggered. They're now um, uh, uh, in progress. Now, what, what we come to understand is that the fulfillment of these promises are, are going to come not in one stage, but in two. <laughs> so the first coming, and this created confusion for the people of Israel, of course, because they thought, oh, Isaiah's promises, the kingdom's about to restore, our enemies are going to be defeated, the Romans are going to be dealt with and judged as the wicked people that they are. And it doesn't happen that way. And it's because what we, the New Testament begins to unfold is that the fulfillment of these promises come to pass in not one stage, but two. The first stage was the coming of Christ, where he achieves the, the forgiveness of sins, where he achieves the atonement through his death on the cross and so forth, um, giving space for sinners to be reconciled to God. And after this great ingathering takes place, you see, we're actually the beneficiaries of this delay. If all of these promises were triggered and came to pass right away, we would have been left out. 
just because we're born 2,000 years later. And so this delay allows for the kingdom to be populated with the people of God. And amazing, it includes Gentiles, not just the Jewish people, which is also one of the great truths that we, um, we, we often just take for granted. But that's the wide-angle lens. And the New Testament's happy to refer to the gospel, the, 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 the good news of Christ or the good news of the kingdom to refer to this to all of the blessings associated with the coming of Christ. Wide-angle lens gospel. Now, that's not to say this is a different gospel, but because it also includes the narrow gospel. It includes the need to repent. It includes the need to, um, uh, to recognize, acknowledge our sins, and, and turn to God. But just as the New Testament is very comfortable using the terminology of the gospel in a broad way, it's just as happy to use the same terminology, that is gospel, euangelion, to answer a slightly different question. So the question is, what does a person need to understand and believe in order to be saved? See, there are actually two questions that are being answered by the same word, by the same term. When we're looking at it in a more focused way, the meaning of gospel it's answering the question, what does a person need to understand in order to be saved? And when we address that question, the term gospel has a much narrower focus. And so now I want to just look at the good news, uh, the gospel through a narrow lens. And for that, I'm just, there are several places I could turn to. In this case, I'm going to turn to a different passage that I haven't used before. Um, This is Acts chapter 10. And in Acts chapter 10, um, this is the story where Peter is given a vision and he's called by the, the, he's directed by the Spirit of God to make a a home visit with a Gentile centurion by the name of Cornelius. Cornelius was someone who's described as a moral, a virtuous man. He's described as a God-fearer, but he as yet has not been presented with the good news, the gospel concerning Jesus. And so this passage is instructive because what we're given is um, just a, a, a brief speech from Peter that is described as the gospel. This speech that's given by Peter and directed at this Gentile centurion. This is Acts chapter 10, um, beginning in verse 36. Peter says, as for the word that he, God, sent to Israel, and he describes this word now as preaching good news of peace. That's our terminology there. Um, it's a verbal form, but it's the same, it's the same word uh, based on euangelion. Preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, and then it, it, the, the ESV puts this in parentheses, the Lord who is Lord of all. Now, that's significant because of who he's talking to. He's talking to a Gentile. And this was not easy for Peter. And and the the beginning of the chapter explains what it took for Peter to go into the home of a Gentile. Okay, And he has this vision that helps orient him that this is the will of God for him. But the question is, what does Peter mean? In this case, he's going to preach the good news of peace through Jesus Christ. 
Well, he goes on to do a little history about how Christ was baptized and the Spirit comes upon him, how as a result then he goes and and he performs miracles, and especially miracles of, of healing. And then we pick it up in verse 39. Here, Peter offers his own personal testimony. And we are witnesses of all that he, Jesus, did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. Well, what is, it they, what is it that happened? They, reference to the Jewish leaders, put Jesus to death by hanging him on a tree. So right away, here's the, the way he's defining this gospel, the good news of peace. It's about Jesus being crucified, and then he continues. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. So first, what is he going to really zero in on? First, the death of Christ. And then he's going to zero in on the resurrection of Christ. And he continues then in verse 42. And he, Jesus, commanded us to preach to the people and to testify And this is the good news that he was called to preach, that he, Jesus, is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. Now, that's a way of saying this Jesus is the long-expected, anticipated Messiah, the one who will serve as king, the one who will have authority to judge the living and the dead. So this good news is about Jesus, the Messiah, the one who is crucified, the one who is resurrected. And then verse 43, to him, all the prophets bear witness. And here is the necessary response that informs this brief, narrow lens gospel. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. The emphasis is on death, the atoning death of Jesus, and the resurrection. So the death of Christ was a death for sins. The resurrection is that which confirms that this was, in fact, the one appointed to judge the living and the dead. The resurrection was a supernatural event that could only uh, be accomplished through the power, the supernatural power of a divine being, the, the power of God confirming that Jesus was who he said he was and that his death was not for his own sins, but as a payment for the sins of all who would place their faith. And then the necessary response is to believe. Believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be, who the New Testament declares him to be. And that belief is a sense of um, uh, not just a, a mental understanding, oh, I, I, you know, I ascribe to the facts, but it's also understood that embedded in this belief is a, a kind of trust, a kind of uh, commitment to um, uh, uh, that this Jesus, through his death, has saved me, has brought about my forgiveness. And so uh, the one who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins, which then leads to peace with God, reconciliation, and eternal life. All of that is embedded in this idea of the forgiveness of sins. Uh, again, through his name, through the name of Jesus, through what Christ has done. So this is 
the, the New Testament is very happy to call that the good news, to call this the gospel. And this is the gospel that when we have opportunities in general, I mean, it, there may be other opportunities with neighbors to do the whole enchilada, you know, to really dig in and talk about all the blessings of what it means to be in Christ and the blessings that we experience now. And, and what does Ephesians mean when it, and it says um, uh, that we have all the uh, spiritual blessings in the heavenly places and, and to talk about being heirs and co-heirs with Christ and, and the future kingdom and the remade earth and all of this. There, there may be opportunities to have that conversation. But the conversation that Paul wants to especially have initially with unchurched or spiritually lost individuals is this message, the message of Jesus, the reason for his coming, the reason and the meaning of his death on the cross, the atoning substitutionary death, and the resurrection along with our necessary response to that message. Now, I included in your outline uh, another critic, you know, a key passage that just shows that the apostle and the New Testament understand the gospel in this narrow lens as well. The narrow lens, by the way, makes up the big picture too. It's just you're focusing in on some, what is needed, what do you have to understand in order to be saved? That's the narrow, um, the narrow question that's being answered uh, in this. And so I encourage you to go back and read 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 5, because that's almost a creedal formula that's very early that Paul is saying, I'm not making up. This is the message that was given to me. And it's just a very crisp um, understanding of the importance of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And he calls that, this is the gospel and our necessary response to stand in this. That, that, that's the way he describes this response to the gospel. Now what I want to do is just take a little time to give you um, um, just a, a very brief way that you could have a conversation with someone who, you know, um, they're unchurched or, or they just, you, maybe they are church, but they still don't quite get what you mean by the gospel. And so one of the tried and true ways of explaining this kind of narrow lens understanding of the gospel is what's sometimes referred to as the Romans road. Now, let me say this. What I don't want you to come away with is saying, there's only one way <laughs> to talk to somebody about, about Jesus. If you read through like the gospels themselves and you just look at the preaching of Jesus and all the different metaphors he uses with individuals to describe the reason of his coming and the means of salvation, he uses me metaphor after metaphor after metaphor. So there, there are all kinds of different ways to explain the gospel, okay? So I'm just giving you one way of many. And maybe the Spirit will lead you in a different way, and that is perfectly fine. We trust that the Spirit will give us the words to say. But I'm just going to give you one kind of, it's a, it's a simple way of communicating this basic idea of what is necessary, what do you have to understand in order to be saved, and so this is called the Romans Road. And it's just, um, I have four verses here. Honestly, when I go through this, I'm going to use more than four, but, but you could do this with four verses. So it begins, and, and there are three movements. You've got to help people understand the bad news, okay? The bad news is about sin. And then you want to follow that with the good news. The good news is Christ and what he's accomplished for us. 
And then the third movement is the necessary response. What our necessary response is to this message. That's it. That's, that's the, the narrow lens of, of the gospel. Um, our need, the bad news, the problem of sin, which sometimes gets assumed, but we can no longer assume this. Um, and, and then the good news, the coming of Jesus, what he's done for us, and then our necessary response. So what's the bad news? Well, the bad news is Romans 3.23. It's the problem of sin. You know, it's, as we look at, the, there are all kinds of ways of answering the question, what is wrong with the world? All you have to do is turn on the evening news and you're going to realize there is something terribly wrong with the world that we live in. The question is why? And there's something terribly wrong with our own spiritual condition. And if we're honest, we realize that. We admit this. We admit, you know, even atheists, I remember R.C. Sproul just going, you know, having this conversation with an atheist, and, and he says, okay, what do you do with your guilt? And that's usually a showstopper. Because if a person's honest, they're like, yeah, I do. I don't want to admit that I have guilt because I don't believe in God, and therefore I shouldn't, you know, there shouldn't be this moral standard that I'm being held accountable to, but I am. We recognize there's something wrong with the world. We recognize there's something wrong with us. And the question is, what is the nature of the problem? The answer to that question is what the Bible refers to as sin. And so the very first passage that I take a person to with the Romans road is Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that's saying that the problem with the world is us. The problem um, that results in, in the problems we see in the, in the world around us is, is that we have this problem. This, it's a spiritual condition um, a, a, that is described as a sinful spiritual condition. And what the New Testament tells us is that no one is immune from this problem, that for all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. And that little definition of sin is is a failure to meet God's standards of righteousness helps define for us, the New Testament defines sin, is that which falls short of God's moral standards. Now, I have had an occasion where, you know, I've never sinned. I am a good person. Now, usually this is a very young person, (laughs) And then I just say, well, have you ever, have you ever lied? <laughs> and usually they're like, oh. <laughs> end of that, that kind of question. Everybody knows, if they're honest, that yes, I have failed. I have failed even to keep the standards that I hold myself and others to, even if I deny God's standards. Well, what's the, the result of this? Well, that's Romans 6.23. And there um, we read, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The key line is that first sentence, or the first line, first phrase. For the wages of sin is death. What is it that our sin results in? What is it? So what's a wage? Well, a wage is something that you merit, you earn as a result of doing labor, some agreed upon payment for your labor. What the Bible is saying is what our sin earns for us, the wage it earns for us is what it describes here as death. And what you have to understand is that this is not merely referring, people will immediately think, oh, you you know, physical death. 
That's not exactly the way the, the New Testament uses this terminology here. Um, uh, it certainly includes physical death, but, but more to the heart, this spiritual death is a kind of, it, it's two things. It is separation from God. And so what sin does is you can kind of use this illustration is that, is it creates a chasm between God and humanity and humans. And this chasm is not the kind of chasm, you know, that evil can evil could jump over, um, which is dating me. I realize some of you are evil who, um, a motorcycle jumper. He tried to jump the grand Canyon. I, I, he, broke every bone in his body or something. But anyway, um, not even evil can evil could jump this, this, this chasm. This is like the Grand Canyon wide. And there's nothing we can do to cross this thing. So sin is separation from God. It's eternal separation so that if it's not addressed, it will last forever. And the other part of this um, sin is, is, a way, is that it places us under the just judgment of God. In other words, our sin in God's eyes, sin sometimes isn't quite a, a, a really helpful term, so I, I like to use the, the terminology of crime. Our sins are like crimes before God. And every crime, God being perfectly just, every crime has to be paid for. Okay, Every crime must be paid for. And since God is a perfectly just God, he can't just like close his eyes and act like it never happened. That would make him a liar. He cannot lie to himself. He is a perfectly just God. And so, um, so this sin creates a problem in two directions. It separates us from God, and it places us under the just judgment of God. And if, if it remains unsolved at the time of death, it will, it will endure into eternity. And the Bible calls this hell. This, this spiritual situation is hell forever. And it is a situation that we choose. We chose to stay separated um, from, from God. Well, what do we do? What, what's the good news? And at this point, we have the justice of God that has to be satisfied. But we also recognize that the New Testament tells us that God is a loving God, right? Everybody knows this. God is what? Love. And because of loving God, he wants to have a relationship with his people. How can a loving God, how can the love of God be satisfied and at the same time his justice be satisfied? This is the great conundrum. This is the Gordian knot of Scripture. This is, you know, the, the baby brought before Solomon, you know, who, who, who's the right mother? This is th- this impossible situation that has to be solved, How do we solve the love of God being expressed in a way that people are not um, separated from God for eternity and still God's just judgment is satisfied? His sense of justice is satisfied. Well, this is the good news. And so the good news, and there's just, I only have one verse here, and this is where I would add maybe a couple, but um, Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love, okay? So now God's going to show us how are both his love and sense of justice satisfied. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, we're still criminals in God's sight. Christ died, not for himself, for us. And there's an awful lot in that little phrase, Christ died for us. And here's God's divine solution to this problem of 
divine justice at work against divine love. The love of God is demonstrated to us while we were still criminals, not when we were good, but while we were still in our sin, that he sent Christ to die for us. And this is where I would add some, maybe some different passages, like 2 Corinthians 5.21, for instance. Um, he who knew no sin became sin for us uh, so that we might become the righteousness of God. And it tells us that on the cross, God's justice and love come together. How? On the cross, Jesus satisfies the justice of God by dying by being separated from God, by enduring the wrath of God on the cross, not for his sins, but as a substitute, as a substitutionary atonement for us. He takes our place. That's what that means. By taking our place, it's like we were in line to be crucified in God's sight. Jesus gives us an opportunity. He says, if you will let me, I will take your place. And so this is what the gospel is, that Jesus has already actually provided the means of our um, uh, payment, the payment that we um, uh, had to give. He dies in our place on the cross. And the result of this is so that the cross is at the same time a demonstration of God's justice. And, and this is not cosmic child abuse because Jesus went voluntarily. He was not forced, to, he was not coerced to do this. He did it out of his own love, a love for his father, a love for us. And so on the cross, we have this beautiful coming together of the justice of God being satisfied through his death, his payment for sin, and the love of God, and that his own son, father and son together, willingly offer themselves in our place so that our sins might be forgiven, that our sins can be atoned for. Atonement, just you could think of as meaning at one meant. So by his death, we are made at one with God. But it's not enough just to know. That's, that's kind of the heart of the gospel. And I'd also say, you know, and this is where, you know, well, how do we know that his death was an atonement, atoning sacrifice for sin? Well, that's where the resurrection comes in. Jesus demonstrated that his words were true. He has, God has demonstrated that Jesus was the son that he is the Messiah by bringing him back from the dead on the third day, okay? By raising him from the dead on the third day. And so that is the good news, but that's not the end of the story. There is a necessary response that is required of all those who would receive this death uh, as payment for their own sinful condition, so that they can be reconciled with God, that they might inherit eternal life. Well, this is Romans 10, verses 9 and 10, and then just kind of moving down to verse 13. In Romans 10, we read this, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There it is. This is the necessary response. Verse 10, for with the heart, one believes and is justified. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. And then just verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, what qualifiers on that? Everyone. Only, you know, rich people, <laughs> only Jewish people, <laughs> only, you know, well-educated people. No, for everyone 
who calls on the name of the Lord will be what? Saved. This is the question that this narrow lens is asking. What do we have to understand in order to be saved? And the answer is, in terms of the response, it's a response of belief and trust. Uh, To confess with a mouth is, from a Jewish uh, mentality, anything that's genuinely true inside a person will come out their mouth. It should come out their mouth. So this confession is simply demonstrating the, the, the nature of one's um, heart involved in their relationship to the Lord, in relationship to this message of good news in Christ. So we believe, and it should, you confess it with the mouth. That's, the, that's how the, the ancient mindset understands a genuine work. It, it, it's confessed. And, um, and so this includes understanding and it includes trust. For instance, um, I, I could show you, you know, this pen works. I, I've been writing and you can see the blue ink. And if you use it, it'll work for you too. But what do you have to do in order for it to accomplish anything for you? You have to reach out and take the pen <laughs> and use it. That's a sign of your commitment to the belief that it's a good and useful pen. Or, you know, you want to travel from um, Ohio to Washington and, and you're going to get on a plane. You know that plane, you believe that the plane will get you from point A to point B. You may be a little nervous <laughs> about, you know, will it stay in the air sufficiently? Um, all you need is enough faith to get on that plane, to trust that plane, to actually carry you from point A to point B. That's what's important here. This is something that is received. The, the way we demonstrate this, this kind of trust is by faith. We believe we place our trust in Jesus, not, for instance, in our good deeds somehow outweighing our bad deeds. No, we renounce that. Jesus paid it all. We trust him by faith to save us. He's the savior. We're not the savior. Nothing of this world is the savior. And so that's part of that repentance is renouncing anything else that we might trust in. Trusting and believing, Jesus, I believe you're the son of God. I believe that you really, your death was an atonement for sins. It was a payment for sins. I believe that because of what you did, I can be reconciled with God and I can be granted this gift of eternal life. Jesus, I believe, save me. And, and it's a simple prayer like that, um, that, you know, mysteriously, the, the gifts and the blessings of Christ are then credited to us. This is a, a, a benefit, a blessing that is received as a gift, a free gift. And that way, God gets all the glory, he gets all the praise, and it should humble us, because we did nothing. We did nothing except just simply uh, be the recipients of his grace. Last week, I gave this, this challenge. Some of you have taken me up. You've already begun to uh, write me, or um, someone just gave me a three-page <laughs> of a report this morning. Um, and the challenge was not necessarily to have this conversation that I just described, but it was to reach out to a neighbor, um, to a coworker, maybe a, an unchurched family member, and to just reach out to them to express God's love in some way. It could be as simple as someone's just saying, you know, I had two conversations just out walking in my neighborhood. 
And I just asked the person how I could pray for them. And it generated this really delightful spiritual conversation. Okay? It could be something that simple, or it could be inviting someone over for a meal. I had someone who said, I have now, they haven't done it yet, but I've scheduled two families to come over and join us for a meal that, that um, uh, just to, to build, a, just to get to know each other and to build relationships uh, w- with those that are outside the church. I want to encourage you to keep up um, with this over at least the next three weeks. And at the, at the end of the week, as you've had a chance to maybe have some of these conversations or, or simply to um, engage with someone who's unchurched, maybe it's just a note, maybe it's a, an email, um, a phone conversation, let me know. Just let me know what the Lord is doing, okay? And, and so that we can all be encouraged by that. And, and hopefully I'll, I'll have some things that um, I'll be prepared to, uh, to report back to you to see how is God using us as a congregation to demonstrate the love of Christ to the community around us. The gospel can be viewed through a wide or narrow lens. And when we're talking about the message that people need to believe in order to be saved, we're talking about that message that focuses on the problem of human sin and the solution that God provides through the atoning death and resurrection of Jesus. Every person needs to understand this basic message. Would you pray with me? Our God and our Father, Lord, we are grateful for the gospel. We're grateful for the many, the, all the blessings that you have attached to the coming uh, and the enthronement of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. And we're also grateful, Lord, for that message that has been proclaimed for millennia now, a message of how we can be reconciled with you, how we can have our sins forgiven and experience peace. So, Lord, we pray that as a church, we would be involved in the mission that Jesus uh, was sent here to accomplish, to seek and to save the lost. And so we pray that your spirit would fill us and lead us and guide us. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us the words to say um, as those opportunities arise. And so, Lord, we, we, we pray for your blessing now. In Jesus' name, amen.